Thank you for that, Tracy. Uh, there is an order of service uh, and a sermon outline that you might want to look on with uh, that will be helpful to follow along as we look at uh, Romans chapter 5 this morning. Uh, let me welcome you if you're a guest or visitor to our church and joining us. It's a pleasure to have you actually join us today. Uh, church, let me pray for us as we have a look at the Bible. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal yourself in and through your word. We thank you for this portion of the Bible uh, that reminds us and teaches us uh, why uh, there is brokenness in our world, and which also teaches us your solution to the brokenness in our world. So help us now understand uh, this part of the Bible, how it applies to our lives by your spirit. And so we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Even if you didn't think there was anything wrong with your life, it's fair to say that we live in a broken world, uh, a world where things are always failing or falling apart or falling short, uh, which is why in every sphere of life, if you think with me for a moment, we are always trying to fix things. Now, those of you who are at home will know that what do you do on holidays? You're constantly fixing things around the house because things are always falling apart. We're always trying to make things better in our lives. Uh, we're always trying to make things right, improve things, we're always seeking to restore things. It's the reason why change.org exists. Some of you have used it. Others have signed petitions on change.org. It's actually a platform online. For, for, it's an online platform to petition for change, to fix things, uh, to make things right, to restore things. In fact, every movement for justice the ending of slavery, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, the movement to end apartheid, BLM, Me Too, indigenous land rights, environmental protection. What are they? They are all attempts to make things right, to make things better, to restore things. It's also what we expect of those who represent us, right? Those in positions of power and authority, those we elect into government, we want them to make our lives better. We want them to make the world a better place. Now, there's one thing, though, I have never seen on change.org. I have never seen a petition to fix the ultimate brokenness in life and our world. I have never seen a petition against death. Have you realized that? Let's sign a petition to end death. I've never seen with a politician... I've ne an interview with a politician, I've never seen one where they asked them, so what are you going to do to fix the problem of death? Never seen that. Interesting, isn't it? Fix our rising interest rates, fix our electri electricity price problems, our housing problems, our carbon emission problems, but I've never seen anyone ask a politician to fix the ultimate brokenness in our lives and our world, death. Why is that? Well, it's simply because there are some things in life that no one can change. There's some things in life no one can fix, that no one can reverse, that no one can run from. Death is the ultimate brokenness in life, that we either ignore, we rage, or we fight against it, or we despair over it, right? Which is why even if you didn't think there was anything wrong with your life, the specter of death remains a haunting presence in your life. And, and, and it's this shadow of ultimate brokenness that follows us and eventually overwhelms us, it's a reminder to us that there is something wrong in our lives and our world. We might not want to admit it, but it's true. Death is the, is the specter of brokenness that haunts us. Now, this passage we're going to look at this morning, right? Verse 12 to verse 21. 
actually addresses the problem of death and the Christian solution. Now, whether you believe the Christian solution or not is a totally different thing, but that's what this passage does. Uh, the problem of death and the Christian solution, right? And we've got to look at, at that under three headings. You see it in your Bibles, uh, the reason for death, the rescue from death, and the reign of God's grace. You see there? Three things. I'm going to look at it under those three headings, uh, the reason for death, the rescue from death, and the reign of God's grace. So if you have your Bibles, have a look with me at verse 12. This is how Paul describes the reason for death in our world, right? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death comes to all people because all sin. Notice we move from, the, from one man's sin to all people dying. You see that? Very easy, verse 12, right? This is death's origin story, right? We've been taken all the way back to the opening chapters of the Bible. And the opening chapters of the Bible opens with the story of a creation where things are in harmony, where things are good. Uh, a world without pain or suffering or death. Now, you might not believe that, but you can certainly imagine that because all of us here can imagine a world that's good, a world that's free from suffering and a world that has no death. You can imagine that. In fact, it's what everyone longs for. Christian or not, religious or secular, uh, whichever side of the political spectrum you sit, you can certainly imagine a world where things are right and things are good a world where there's perfect justice, a world without evil, uh, a world without pain and suffering and death. It's not beyond our imagination because it's what we all desire. And the opening chapters of the Bible speaks of God creating a world such as this. But the opening chapters of the Bible also speaks of an intrusion, a disruption, a crisis, an act of rebellion, a willful act of sin and disobedience. And it has devastating consequences for all, okay? Now, we're not looking at it today, but you find that story, uh, the origin story of death in Genesis chapter 3, the story of sin entering the world through a man called Adam. He wanted to be like God, deciding for himself right and wrong, right? Taking control effectively of his own life, wanting to play God in life. And it has devastating consequences, Broken relationship with the creation. The creation will be a hostile place to live in. We experience that. Broken relationship with Eve. Relationships are now in conflict. And then finally, death becomes the ultimate suffering. It brings an end to all human life. Death is introduced into our world. And so, so here's the thing, right? In the Bible's account of creation, death is unnatural. It's an intruder, actually a very violent intruder, the penalty of sin and disobedience, the ultimate pain and suffering that should not be. Uh, and those of you who have experienced the death of a loved one, someone close to you, can attest to that truth. Because what does death do? Death doesn't just end life. It ends love, doesn't it? It ends love. Uh, it separates us from life and love. And that's the reason why you grieve, you weep, your heart is broken and what do you wish for? You wish you could have it all back. That's what everyone wishes for in the face of death. Restored life and restored love. This week, uh, I read a blog by secular humanist Wendy Weber. Uh, she blogged very recently on the death of her father, and this is what she wrote. I think the hardest part about grieving for me is all the future conversations I will not have with him. 
I've always talked through tough decisions. He's my favorite person to talk with about news, politics, theology, and history. I haven't been able to follow the news these last few months because too many stories make me want to call him to get his views. It's been difficult for me to write since he died, since we are both writers, and have shared our writing since my first poems when I was seven. I can't talk to him anymore or write with him anymore. Death is the ultimate brokenness, the ultimate suffering, because it separates us from life and love, and we want it back. Now, there is an alternative view to death. The secular world would have you believe that death in our world is natural. It's part of the cycle of life. It's biology at work. We grow old, we get sick, our bodies break down, and we die. Death is simply nature at work, and we should just accept it. But the reality is we don't accept it. No one does. In the words of the poet Dylan Thomas that I often quote, we do not go gentle into the good night. We rage, rage, and rage against the dying of the light. And, and when it comes into our lives, we are grieved by it. Our hearts are broken and we wish things are different. We wish we could have life and love back. You know, uh, I've done funerals. I've sat with people who are dying. Uh, and you know, sometimes you go to a funeral and I've listened. And I've never been to a funeral where the funeral director, the person giving the eulogy, the one who has experienced loss, actually says, we should accept Uncle Bob's passing. We can take comfort knowing nature has taken its course. No one ever says that. No one. There's always grief and a desire for life and love returned. See, even if you didn't believe in a resurrection, you wish there was a resurrection. Your heart tells you otherwise. Something is wrong. Life is broken. Death is not right. And here we're given the reason for death. Sin enters the world through one man and death through sin. And through Adam's sin, death comes to all. And then we read something very unusual. Notice verse 12. And in this way, death came to all people because all sin. We go from one man's sin to everyone dying, and then we're told because all sin. It's the Bible's way of saying that everyone has sinned in and through Adam, and because of that, we all die. We share, as it were, in Adam's disobedience and rebellion. Now, some people have said to me at this point, hey, Huge, that's really unfair. I wasn't there in Genesis 3, was I? I'm not the one who wanted to be like God. I'm not the one who acted in disobedience and rebellion. Well, let me say two things this morning. Firstly, you and I actually die because we're born into a broken and sinful world. Uh, we're born with inherited sinful tendencies to rebel, to deny God His rightful place in our lives, which means that we're inherently sinful. Now, that's what Romans 2 and 3 has argued. Okay, So if you've been around here at Grace Point the last few months, uh, Romans 2 and 3 has argued that, that all have sinned and fall short. But there's a second thing, and this is what we read today in this passage. You and I die because in and through the one man, Adam, we too share in his sin. All sinned in and through Adam, therefore all die. Now, how does that actually work? Well, the principle of representation is the way God works. Okay, let me say that. Let me repeat that. The principle of representation is the way God works. The one represents the many, okay? The one represents the group. Now, you might think that's strange, but it's actually not strange. It's not surprising because that's also the way the world works. 
not just in traditional cultures, but in Western secular culture as well. You know, have you, have you ever noticed that when it comes to government, we have elected officials that represent us, okay? And that's why you're really picky who you choose, because you want them to represent your interests, the one for the many. Have you noticed in the world of sport, uh, we have the best sports men and women representing us, okay? The one for the many, Uh, It's also true in traditional cultures. In traditional cultures around the world, uh, we have kings and monarchs, you've got tribal leaders that represent their people, their community, their tribe, their group. In fact, even as um, someone who is Western and very individualistic, we celebrate being represented. Has that ever occurred to you? Uh, and sometimes we want to be represented, right? We want uh, the principle of representation is more desirable than we're willing to admit because you, if you think with me for a moment, we often want someone to, to be the voice that speaks for us, to advocate for us, to represent our interests. In fact, we also live vicariously true representation in so many areas of life. That's why we love our influencers and our celebrities and sporting heroes because when they win, we win. When they fail, we feel like we've failed, we grieve. And when they lose, we feel like we've lost as well. Uh, There's a solidarity with those who represent us. You know, if they win, we win. Notice how when your sporting team wins, I think the Rabbits are playing today, aren't they? Nick, I don't know, there's there's a game on today. Uh, Nick doesn't care because that's not his team. He only cares when his team is playing, right? But when your sporting team wins, what do you say? You say, we won. Well, technically, you haven't won. They've won because you weren't on the field, right? You notice when the Blues lost last week, people, you know, people were saying, oh, we lost. You didn't lose. They lost, okay? But you feel it. They represent you, which is why I've said before, when those who represent us make decisions for us, we also bear the costs and we bear the consequences. Uh, if those who represent us in government, if they decide to go to war, All of us bear the consequences. All of us become the enemy of those we are now at war with because there is a solidarity with those who represent us. Well, in the storyline of the Bible, Adam represents us. He represents all humanity, all people, and he failed, he sinned, he rebelled. And because of our solidarity in and through Adam, we too have failed. We too have sinned, we have rebelled. We're born with inherent sinful tendencies. In fact, uh, in verse 13 and verse 14, Paul reminds us, you look with me at 13 and 14, Paul reminds us that death was actually present before the giving of the law. Sin was present before the law was given. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. In other words, you didn't have to actually break a command to die. He says, death has reigned from the time of Adam, even before the law was given, which is 400 years later. Death was present even in the lives of people who did not sin by breaking a specific command. All have sinned in and through Adam. Author and uh, pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, he sums it up this way. He says, God has always dealt with humanity through a head and through a representative. The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam and what has happened and will yet happen because of Jesus. And to that we now turn in verse 15 to verse 19. The rescue from death. You see, death comes through one man and then life and the reversal of death comes through another man. The rescue from death. 
verse 15 to verse 19. Right? So verse 15 to verse 19 is all about what God does to rescue through another guy. And I want you to notice that God's rescue is described, what? As a gift. Can you see there? An act of God's grace that comes by another man, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, not like sin. For of the many died by the trespass, the sin of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Now, I want you to notice that in Christianity, the call in Christianity is not to save yourself. God doesn't say, you make up for your sin and the sin of Adam. God doesn't say, do better than Adam. God doesn't say, Adam was an example of what not to do, and if you can avoid doing that, you're in. Right? He doesn't say that, right? God doesn't say, work at being good enough, and when you're good enough, come. God doesn't say, keep my commands and you'll escape death. Christianity says, in and through Adam, all sin, and therefore all are under the sentence of death. Christianity says, you cannot save yourself. That's That's the first thing Christianity says. You cannot save yourself. And we all know that to be true, don't we? Because we all live under the reign of death. No one can actually avoid it. Uh, Look at verse 17 with me. By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. The world is actually a place of cemeteries. Death is actually the apex predator in life. In every generation, across every culture, on every continent. And there is no antidote. There is no vaccine that stops its onslaught. But Christianity also says rescue is possible. See that? You can't save yourself, but rescue is possible. It comes as God's gift through another man, the work of another man. And so what you're supposed to do in this passage is you're supposed to put Adam and Jesus side by side and you'll see the greatness of God's gift. Look at verse 16. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. That's the contrast. Adam sinned, he experienced judgment and was condemned, and the expectation is that With the expansion of sin, the more sin, the more trespasses, with the passing of time, as sin spreads into the life of men and women in the generations, you expect there will be even greater judgment, greater condemnation for the sons and daughters of Adam. For us, but what do we read instead? But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Our sins, they are many and great. Sinners, they are many and great. Enemies, they are many and great. But His mercy is more the gift is greater. This is the mats of God's grace. Um, All of us here, right, uh, Christian or not, we tend to operate on the principle of works. We all do. Uh, We tend to think people should get what they deserve, right? More sin should attract more judgment, more condemnation. But God operates on the principle of grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. More sins mean more grace is shown. In place of condemnation, there is what the Bible calls justification. We are gifted justification, a way to be right with God. The gift follows many trespasses, sin, disobedience, rebellion, and brought justification. In other words, you were previously poor, now you are rich. Previously an enemy, now made a son or daughter. Previously undeserving, now deserving. Previously condemned, now forgiven. Previously guilty, now declared innocent, in the right, accepted and welcome. 
uh, two things actually happen at the cross, if you've never realized this. The one man dies in place of the many. Jesus is condemned in our place. He faces sin and dies in our place. But then there's a second thing that happens. He also gifts us something, righteousness. His obedience secures for us righteousness. He credits into our bankrupt bank account right standing. He clothes us with His beauty, His obedience, His right standing. And that's what we read in verse 18 to verse 19. One sin results in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as true the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous, right with God, beautiful, loved, welcome, accepted. God declares the guilty innocent, the sinner saint, the disobedient obedient, the condemned forgiven, the scarred beautiful, the unloved loved, the rebel friend. And He does it on account of Jesus, the one man who represents us. That's justification. God's yes and validation and approval of you because of Jesus. That's why I keep saying Christianity is very different from religion. It's completely different from religion. Religion says, you be the hero in the salvation story. You be the hero in your salvation story. Christianity says, Jesus is the hero of your salvation story. Can you see the difference? Religion says, you be the hero in your salvation story. Christianity says, Jesus is the hero in your salvation story. It's not about trying to save yourself. In Christianity, God gives to you forgiveness, righteousness, approval, acceptance, and love, not because you are deserving or because you've earned it, but because someone else has paid for your sin and someone else has clothed you with His righteousness, His beauty, His approval, His righteousness, His merit, and His goodness. But there's still the problem of the reign of death, isn't there? There's still a problem. Uh, there's one more piece of good news to this gift. Come back with me to verse 17. Notice, through one man's sin, death comes. But notice the second half of verse 17. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life, rule in life, through the one man, Jesus Christ? Notice, through one man, the reign of death is subdued, conquered, overcome. Okay? Right? Uh, I want you to read the second half of verse 17 very, very carefully. We're told that those who receive God's provision of grace, those who receive the gift of righteousness, notice, will reign in life, will reign over death through Jesus. <laughs> those who have received the gift aren't just forgiven. They aren't just justified or declared right. Notice, they will reign in life over death through Jesus. It means death will not rule over them. They will rule over death. Now, I'm going to look at a lot. I'm going to look at that next week, really. I'm going to expand a little bit more on that next week. But for now, I want you to notice what that means. It means death will no longer be the last word in your life. It means that those who receive God's gift no longer need to live under the tyranny and grip and fear of death. The consequences of sin will no longer hold you captive forever. We reign with Jesus over death. How? 
go back to chapter 4, verse 23 and verse 24, because there, very quickly, notice we read, the words it was credited to him were written not just for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. Okay? In other words, God will justify. He'll make us right. But notice, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over death for our sin, was raised to life for our justification. Which means that Jesus didn't just die for our place, he rose as well. And so Jesus is the man who now represents us, right? And he represents us. He doesn't just represent us in dealing with our sin. He hasn't just secured our justification. He also secures our reign over death, right? That's the reason why Christian people who have understood the gospel, the gift of God, they view death differently. That's why Christians view death differently. We mourn and we grieve because Life and love has been taken from us, but we grieve not in vain because Christian people actually believe death is not the last word for those who have received the gift. You know, I've done funerals, and sometimes when I do Christian funerals, I'll, I'll read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and verse 14. Let me read that for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, 14 puts it like this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. Notice how death is described. It's described as sleep, falling asleep in Jesus, which means there's going to be a waking up. The darkness of the, of the night gives way to the morning light. Death is not the end of life. The reign of death has been cut short and it no longer holds us captive because Jesus, the one man who represents us, has gone ahead and punched away true death. And so in him we reign over death in life. That's verse 17. Now, the secular world would have you believe that there is nothing beyond death. It's the end of the road, period. Wendy, uh, the secular humanist uh, who wrote about death, of her, the death of her dad that I mentioned earlier, She also wrote these words as you come to the tail end of her story. She writes, death, she says, might be the hardest aspect of life for someone like me who is a secular humanist. Why? And she writes, there is not a belief in an afterlife where a person's soul exists in any tangible or cohesive way. Here's the thing, you know, your head tells you death is natural. It's nature taking its course. It's the end. There's nothing more. But your heart wishes there was the possibility of life and love returned to you. Uh, If you were here for Easter this year, uh, I told the story of Sigmund Freud, uh, neurologist and founder of psychoanalysis. He was also someone who didn't believe in God. He was an atheist. He held a natural uh, worldview. And then I shared the story that when Freud lost his daughter to death, He wrote, as a confirmed unbeliever, I have no one to accuse, and I realize there's no place I can lodge a complaint. I can't complain. He felt grief. He felt the pain of a broken heart, life and love stolen from him. And so it's interesting, isn't it? Even if you held a naturalist worldview, a secular worldview, and you believe death was normal, it's just, uh, you know, nature taking its course, your longing for love without parting, to have love restored, life returned, the feeling that, that what's happened is just wrong still haunts you. You want something better. 
Even if you didn't believe in anything beyond death, you wish death could be reversed. You wish you could reign over death and have life and love return to you. You see, when death intrudes into our lives and into the lives of those we love, what is your deepest desire? Your default position is never, oh, it's just nature running its course. No, that's not your default position. The default position of your heart is you long for long for life and love to be restored and returned to you. You want it reversed. Even the most hardened unbeliever wishes a resurrection was possible because we all want life and love returned to us in the face of death. We all do if we're really, really honest. Now, here's my question this morning. What if it were possible? What if it were possible? What if there was someone able to meet and overcome death for you? Someone who had the power to rule over death. A hero of heroes you could stand with. His death for sin becomes your death. Paid for. And his win over death becomes your win. Well, you know, Christian people actually believe there is someone who has done that for us. There is a hero of heroes. The one who has taken our place at the cross. The one who dies for our sin and the disobedience of many. The one who has walked the path of obedience for us, who has done for us what we cannot do, who clothes us in his beauty and righteousness and goodness. The one who has faced death for us and driven a stake into the heart of death. The one who makes it possible for us to reign in life over death. You see, in Christianity, being rescued is a gracious gift that comes through the work of another man, Jesus Christ. You don't deserve to be rescued You don't work to be rescued, you can only receive it. And that's why in verse 15 and verse 17, you hear it repeated twice, God's abundant grace overflowing. The gift, the gift, the gift, the gift of righteousness received through the one man, Jesus Christ. The reason for death, in Adam all die because all sin. The rescue from death in Jesus Christ, it's made possible. The gift of justification God makes it possible for us to be right with Him, and He makes it possible for things to be made right, to be restored, and for death to be reversed. And and if this is true, then have a look at verse 20 to verse 21. If this is true, then it means there are only two ways to live, which is what verse 20 and verse 21 actually says. You can either live under the rule of death as a son or daughter of Adam, or you can live under the rule of grace as a son or daughter of the Lord Jesus. Notice what verse 20 says, the law was brought in so the trespass must increase. Uh, In the storyline of the Bible, you might not realize this, uh, the giving of the law comes 400 years after Abraham, but it comes 1,500 years after Adam. Okay, The law was given to make us aware of our sin. In our home, right uh, right now, because I live in Newington, in our home, the taps outside our home has a sign that says, do not drink, recycle water. Now, if the sign wasn't there, and you walked past my house and you were thirsty, you wouldn't know that you shouldn't drink water from the outdoor taps, okay? You wouldn't know that it's bad to drink recycled water. The law was given so that you might be made aware of sin, right? But as that happens and you break the law and sin increases, it also becomes more apparent that the law is being broken, and so the trespass increases, But read the second half of verse 20, because the second half of verse 20 is really interesting, uh, because you expect it to read, where sin increases, judgment and condemnation increase all the more. The more sin, as more people are being made aware that they're breaking the law, judgment and condemnation increases. But he doesn't say that, 
right? So over time, what does it say? Where sin increased, where grace increased, he says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God actually made provision for the spread of sin by the increase of His grace. The fall of Adam, our fall, our sin, and the spread of sin, and the tidal wave of death that marks every human life in every generation is not the last word. What's the last word? Graces. The reign of sin and death is overcome by the reign of grace and life that comes true. Notice the one man, Jesus Christ. That's there in verse 21. As sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, you know, the storyline of the Bible, it, the storyline of the Bible is the story of humanity's sin and, uh, and death basically increasing. That's the story of the Bible. But, and, and, you know, you don't have to be a student of history to know that. It's the story of sin and death and brokenness and the spread of sin and death and brokenness which actually tells you there's something wrong with our world. And again, you don't have to be a student of history to realize that. Just hop onto this week, change.org, and you will read stories of brokenness and injustice and wrongs and crime and oppression and offenses that need to be made right. And that's only in our generation. But I want to say to you, change.org is the cry of the widow and the orphan and the marginalized and the refugee for the last 2,000 years. It's an echo, basically. The sin against them, the death they experience, in fact, all suffering really is a foreshadowing of the ultimate suffering, death itself. It's a reminder to us that we live in a world where the spread of sin and death is exponential in its reach and depth, and it continues to grow each day. But it's not a cause of despair because the spread and increase of sin and death is met with what? the ever-expanding increase of God's grace in making a rescue possible through Jesus. Where sin is rampant, where rebellion is apparent, where disobedience is widespread, where condemnation and death rules, the grace of God is always greater. Because it offers righteousness. It offers a way to be restored. It brings forgiveness. It brings God's approval. It brings hope to those under the sentence of death. It can provide a rescue from the rain of sin and death. Let me actually draw a few points of reflection and application for us this morning. Here's number one. Uh, Where we see and encounter sin in others, when we see wickedness at its worst, when we find ourselves in places where the lines of morality are blurred, when we find a disregard and disdain for God, when we meet people who are openly hostile to God's way, when we meet people whose lifestyle, right, and moral choices disagrees with ours, the Christian response should never be contempt or condemnation. If you have rightly understood what Jesus has done, there should be no room for contempt and condemnation of others in your life. Remember that you too once lived under the reign of death. If you're a Christian, you were once a son and daughter of Adam living in sin and rebellion under the sentence of death. The right Christian response is always humility and grace because it's an opportunity for the rescue of God, the reign of grace to save, to overflow to the many, to experience the abundant provision of God's grace, to receive the gift of righteousness, for Jesus to be the one for them the way Jesus was for me. So if you're someone who looks down on others who are not like you, if you're someone who looks down on others because you think you are morally superior, if you're someone who looks down on contempt 
on others because they have morally failed, and you call yourself a Christian, then you have probably not understood the gospel and God's grace to you in Jesus. It's actually pride and self-righteousness that treats others who are not like you with contempt and condemnation. Because what happens is you're standing on your righteousness, believing you are good and you are better than others. You have made it, uh, you have made it morally, you believe, uh, and they have not. But notice the reign of God's grace. Where that is present, there will be humility and grace towards others. Because you know that your righteousness isn't something you have earned or worked for. It has been gifted to you by the one man, Jesus Christ. And if it's a gift, right? It's a, and it's a gift that God wants to gift others at their worst. For Jesus to be the one for them, the way He has been the one for you. Number two, when you're overwhelmed by the guilt of your sin, sometimes we are, when you are reminded of your past and you feel the weight of shame and condemnation, it's very easy to fall into despair and hopelessness. Can I say to you that you and I will never be able to carry the burden and weight of your sin in life? Okay? The shame might be too great, a past that you cannot make up for, moral failure that's crushing you. The good news of this passage today is that there is one who has carried it for you and who gives to you what you don't have. Who gives to you what you can't earn and what you can't achieve. Forgiveness, righteousness, and approval. Yes, as a son and daughter of Adam, you are a sinner, guilty as charged. Your shame and your condemnation crushes you and is deserving. But because of God's grace and gift of righteousness, notice what has come to you. Your guilt, your shame, your condemnation has been placed on Him, and His obedience and righteousness has been placed on yours. It's become yours. If you look to Adam, you will be crushed by your sin. If you look to Jesus, you'll find relief and rest. Lloyd-Jones, the author, he encourages us with his words. He says, look at yourself in Adam. True, right? Though you have done nothing, you were declared a sinner, and you are condemned because when you look at Adam, you see your sin. But he also says today, look at yourself in Jesus. Look at yourself in Jesus and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared right because He has done for you what you could never do. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing. If it's true that through one man the reign of death has come, if death is the consequences of sin for all, then there are several ways to respond to the problem of death, isn't it? So this is how, you know, in, in, you know I, I, this is what I observe. Uh, some people, when we talk about death, they simply ignore it. Let's not think about it. You could do that. But escapism does not make death any less real. Some people, you know, they despair at the thought of death because you can't do anything about it. They get really scared thinking about it. But then there are also some people who deny it or, or, or are so filled with hubris, they mock death. Nothing to be feared. It's just part of nature. Can I say to you, death is the single greatest physical reality that no one can avoid. There is no one who is healthy because everyone is actually terminal. If you think about it, there's no cure. I, I've, you know, there is no advocacy group or petition that can resolve this in your life. And so the solution isn't found in denying death or avoiding death or falling into despair or stoically facing it. Basically, what I'm saying to you is this passage tells us to stop trying to be a hero in life. 
I can try to face and overcome death, right? We call people like this delusional. I can live my life trying to pay for my sin and trying to be good enough to beat death. You can try, you'll still die. Or you can do what Paul is encouraging us to do in this passage. Receive the work of another for you. The solution is to look to the one who represented you at your worst and smashed the reign of death in your life and my life. Now, in this room, we all have heroes in life. We all do, right? Heroes who represent what we wish for ourselves. Heroes through whom we vicariously live. Heroes who are powerful enough to carry us in our weakness and powerful enough to win for us. And, and we often wish we could share their wins, not just, uh, not just from a distance or behind a screen. What if there was actually a hero who could take our losses and share his wins with us? Well, that's what Jesus does. In a world ruled by sin and death, Jesus actually comes to us as the hero of heroes you can stand with. His death for sin becomes your death, paid for. His obedient life is the robe of righteousness and approval that now clothes you. And His win over death becomes your win forever. Maybe this morning you realize for the first time that you don't have to save yourself. And that's a good thing. Maybe this morning you realize that you don't need to be the hero in life. Because there is one who has come to be the hero in your life. Who has come not just to carry the burden of your sin but who's come to end the rule of death in your life. Maybe this morning is a time to stop trusting yourself and start trusting Jesus. Let me pray for us as the team comes up to lead us in song. Gracious God, we do thank you that even in the brokenness of our lives, through the one man, Adam, we have all sinned and therefore we all die. We thank you that because of Jesus, through His work, we can know not just forgiveness of sin, but we can reign in death knowing that He has gone before us, not just to deal with our sin, but also to deal with the death that marks our lives and the lives of all around us. So help us now look to Him as the hero of heroes. Help us to trust Him this morning. Amen.